Uh, I'm going to speak this morning on children are not pancakes. Now, it may have been a tradition in your home as it was in mine when I was growing up. And we were all living together in one house, grandparents and my mother and father and aunt and uncle, uh, during the Depression. And on Sunday night, we had a kind of family ritual. We would make pancakes or waffles. I don't mean you bought them frozen and put them in the microwave. You did it from scratch. How many of you had a similar tradition in your family? Okay. Well, I remember my mother and my grandmother. They were working, and they'd make those pancakes. And nearly always, the first pancake, you would do what? Throw it away. (laughs) That's exactly right. You'd make all your mistakes on the first one, and then you would throw it away, and then you'd start over. And the second one and the third one and the other one would be okay. Well, the point I'm making is this. Children are not pancakes. You don't get to throw one away. You've got to get it right from the start. You have to get the ingredients right from the start. You have to put it all together to make it work. Now, when you and I have children, and I've been a preacher for over 50 years and a pastor of this church, 40 years starting next month. And Martha and I have been married 50 years next year. And I've been a parent for over 40 years. Now, that doesn't make me an authority. I'm not an authority. But I have had some experience being a pastor and dealing with people's lives, reading, studying, and working, and then being a parent myself, like, like many of you. So I don't claim to have some infallible knowledge because there's not a single one of us that is infallible. Not one of us. We're not perfect people and we're not going to have perfect children. They're going to be infallible. They're going to be fallible also. We are not infallible. We make mistakes. Our children will make mistakes. So if we're going to have the right kind of relationship with our children and the right kind of influence on our children, we need an infallible ingredient, and that ingredient is the Lord himself. Now that will not make us perfect, and it will not make our children perfect, but it will go miles down the road to helping them be the kind of person that God wants them to be and that you want them to be. We cannot do it alone. It takes three to marry a man, woman, and God, and it takes three to raise a child, a man, a woman, and a God. And we cannot do it without God, without God's presence within us to help us, which is why the Bible says in the 22nd chapter of the book of Proverbs, sixth verse, well known, raise up a child, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I know some very godly, dedicated Christians who had some very ungodly children, and vice versa. I know of some very ungodly parents who had some very godly children. The point that God wants to make is you train a child in the way he or she should go, Now listen, you cannot train somebody long distance. 
You cannot train somebody by just giving them a book to read. You've got to be present with them. Children learn by imitation. They do not learn by instruction, by pronouncements, by commandments, by threats. They learn by imitation. If you've not read Monty Roberts' book, The Man Who Listens to Horses, you ought to read that book. It's one of the most remarkable books I've read, and it's a book about life and how to relate to life. This man, world-renowned, talked about how you don't break horses, you don't hurt horses, you don't punish horses to train them. You do it by listening and by loving. And he says, you say, well, that may work with horses. It doesn't work with children. He proved it's worked with children. Forty-five children have become foster children of his and his wife, and they brought them into their home, troubled kids, 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age, and applied the same principles to them that he did to horses, and these kids have all been trained. They've survived because they've been in an atmosphere of affirmation and of love and of compassion. Train. I've performed over a thousand weddings in this church, and I've seen beautiful brides walk down the aisle of this church, and I have yet seen one of them pushing the train. The train follows them. I've seen trains on the railroad track. But I haven't seen a train going down the railroad track that did not have an engine, a locomotive, a diesel engine, pulling it. Your children are going to learn by example. Train up a child. That means be on hand. Be there. Be worthy of imitation. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, now that's a relative term, isn't it? When he is old, it doesn't mean that at 16 it's going to happen, or that 20 it's going to happen, or 25, or 30, or 40, or 50. In fact, you may already be in heaven before your prayers are answered, but you lay the foundation, you and God together, and train up a child in the way he should go. And I believe we have the promise of God that when he's old, he will not depart from it. St. Augustine, one of the greatest minds in the history of the church, one of the greatest influences in the history of Christianity, lived in the late 300s and the early 400s. He was a profligate of all profligates. When he was a teenager, he took a mistress, had a child out of wedlock. Brilliant man, a teacher, a phenomenal mind. And then he decided to marry a girl. The girl he was going to marry couldn't marry for two years, so he took another mistress. But he had a mother. He had a praying mother who in the Catholic Church today is called Saint, Saint Monica, the mother of Saint Augustine. And she prayed him into the kingdom of God and he became one of the most proficient and profound um, proclaimers of the Christian gospel that we've ever heard. You train up a child in the way he, should, he or she should go. And when they're old, we, we want it to take it 13. We want it to take it 10. We want it to take it 20. But some people come along at a different pace. The important thing is not their pace. It is our pace in terms of leading them in a way that they should go. There's a story in the Bible, a wonderful parable. Jesus didn't start telling parables. There are parables in the Old Testament. And there's one in 1 Kings, the 20th chapter. And it's a story that the prophet told the king. These two armies were at battle. And one army captured, captured 
one of the prize leaders of the other army, one of the generals of the other army. And they brought him in and they put him in charge, put a soldier in charge of this prisoner, this prominent prisoner. They said, now you take care of him. You're responsible for him. And if he escapes or if something happens to him, you are going to be held responsible and you are going to be put in his place. He's going to die. And if he escapes, you will die in his place. So it happened. The fellow had the, they told him what to do. And they said, now there's your prisoner. You take care of him. You watch him. Well, suddenly the man was gone. He was gone. And so they got the soldier who was in charge of this prime prisoner and they said, what happened? What happened? I mean, you had one major job to do and you didn't do it. What happened? And here's his answer. While I was busy here and there, he was gone. Well, busy doing what? Your business was to take care of that prisoner. Busy doing what? What? I don't know. I, I don't remember. I was just busy here and there. And he was gone. Now that guard, he knew what he was supposed to do. The commandment was very clear. He was an intelligent man. He knew what his responsibility was. He was also not a lazy man. He was also a man who had great ability or they would not have put their prized prisoner in his charge. But still, in spite of those qualities and those abilities, he got busy here and there and he was gone. Your main business, parents, young parents, your main business is that child. That child is not owned by you. That child has been loaned to you by God. And you have the ability, you have the talent, and you have the capability with God's help to train that child up in the way he should go. But what happens? We get busy here and there. Doing what? Inconsequential things, trivial things, transitory things that don't last, that don't count. I want to mention three of those areas. Do you realize we have a cult in this church? It's in every church. The three cults in this church. Now I'm not talking about a cult like the Branch Davidians and David Koresh up at Waco, but we have a cult. We have the cult, number one, we have a cult of convenience. Convenience. I'll do what I'm supposed to do by God and by my children if it is convenient. If other things are not taking place. If it's convenient. Now, I want to say a word for convenience stores. I believe in them. I'm glad they are around. In fact, I measure civilization by how far my home is from a convenience store. 
At midnight, if I have an insatiable craving for a snicker (laughs) and Martha hasn't brought any home, I am grateful for that convenience store. And I can go up there and I can get my snicker fix. Satisfies me. I'm glad for convenience stores. Now there's a sense, listen, there is a sense in which the church does at times operate as a convenience store. I have a phone number that's in the telephone book. I can be reached 24 hours a day. That's true of other people on our church staff. We have an answering service, emergency. We can be reached. Let me tell you, Friday, I was here doing a whole bunch of stuff, writing letters and answering the phone, and a delivery man who had brought something to our church dropped the delivery off, and he came in, had his uniform on, he came in, and he said, can I talk to you for a moment? I said, well, sure. So we went in my office and closed the door, and he said, uh, he said, I've only got a minute. I've got some more deliveries I have to make, but he said, my life is just coming apart. He said, and he told me his story briefly. He said, I need some help. And I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Well, I said, I know who can help you. And I know some people that God would use to help you. Now, what I want you to do this afternoon is to call our church office and ask for our counseling ministry. Ask for Al Smith or Karen Calhoun. Ask for me. We're here to help you. And you're going to be able to come through this. Okay, that was a ministry. We were a convenience store at that point. But listen, a convenience store is not where you go to celebrate your anniversary dinner. (laughs) A convenience store is not where you go for a candlelight supper with your wife at night. No, you need it for a crisis moment But when you're going to have fellowship, when you're going to converse, when you're going to dine, you realize man is the only animal that dines? All animals eat, but only man dines. That means you sit down, you talk, you converse, you share, you relax. That's what church is to be. It has a convenience store ministry, but the purpose is to get them into the main dining room where they can sit down at the banquet table with God and God's people and be refreshed by the food of the Lord. So, don't let the cult of convenience capture you. There's another cult, the cult of the instantaneous. Man, we live in a day when it is... We have a mania for the instant. Everything is supposed to happen in an instant. What little I know about computers, everybody that works with computers said it's not fast enough. I mean, it's on there in milliseconds, but it's still not fast enough. Planes don't go fast enough. Nothing seems to be fast enough. We live in an impatient era, a mania for the instant. We've got instant coffee, we've got instant lunch, we've got instant everything. Instant medicine. If we get sick, we believe we're supposed to go to the doctor and get a pill or a shot and suddenly we're well. We don't want to have to wait on anything. Now I read this in an Associated Press article. Out in Las Vegas, the Little White Church, Little White Chapel, Little White, it's called the Little White Wedding Chapel in Las Vegas. Uh, The pastor's wife there is Reverend Charlotte Richards. You can 
go into Little White Chapel and for $25 for the wedding and $27.50 for the license, you can be married and out of there in five minutes. Instant marriage. And if it doesn't work out, you can get in your car and drive to Salem, Oregon. And up there, a lawyer has purchased an abandoned bank, branch bank, and you can drive in there and you can take one of those little things, you know, and put the papers in there and all of that, say, we want a divorce and here's our name, so forth, sends it to him. He sits up there and does a little work, sends it back, sends you a bill. You drive in there, five minutes later, you drive out divorced. This is also true. Happened in California. Happened, you know, some weird things happened in California. Pardon me, Al and Bruce and Mike. Um, It's in some ways kind of the weird capital of America. But nevertheless, there was a funeral home, a funeral home out there, a drive-through funeral home where you could drive in and had a covering there. You could drive in and there behind glass in the casket is that corpse stretched out up there. You can look at your friend. There he is, old brother Joe there. And you can punch a button and the tray comes out. You can sign your name as a guest, punch a button, it goes back in and you drive out of there. That's instant mania. You know, you can't do that in church. We don't have that kind of facility here in this church. Listen, parents, we do not have a microwave, a spiritual, divine microwave over there in the children's building where if you bring your child down here occasionally and we can put them in that spiritual microwave and turn on the heat and suddenly five minutes later they walk out of there a saint of God, it does not happen. It does not happen. It takes time. It takes consistency. It takes persistency. It takes example. There's a great quote from Mark Twain. It said, the man who will not read, the man who will not read is no better off than the man who cannot read, who's an illiterate. And listen to me. If I may paraphrase Mark Twain. The parent, the child, put it this way, the child whose parent or parents do not bring him or her to Sunday school and to church and to Christian activities at the church, the child who has parents who do not do that because of convenience or whatever the reason, that child, hear me, will be no better off than the child of an atheist who doesn't believe in God and who never touches the life of a church. No better off unless you bring them, giving an example at home and an example by your own presence in the house of the Lord and fellowship with one another. I have spent the morning about an hour, a little over an hour with our young married adults a couple of 300 of them had a wonderful exchange of ideas and all. question came up there that came up when I was interviewed on radio a couple of weeks ago. People saying, well, my folks made me go to church when I was a kid. And boy, when I got to be 18, I decided I am not going to church anymore. 
They made me go to church. Woman called on the radio program, said, my folks made me go to church. And now that I'm grown, I don't go to church and I don't make my child go to church. I said, let me ask you a question. Did your parents make you go to school? Five days a week? Well, yeah. You're really insulting your parents by saying that. What your parents were saying is that they were as concerned about your spiritual welfare as they are concerned about your intellectual welfare. And you go to school five days a week, even when you don't want to go a lot of days, and they would bring you to church one day a week. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Your parents were doing the best they knew how to do to help you. I asked another question. I said, did your parents make you brush your teeth? Do you know any child that wants to say, oh, I can't wait till I can brush my teeth. <laughs> no, you have to train them and train them and train them to brush their teeth. Suppose somebody said, well, my parents made me brush my teeth. And when I got big, I decided I'm not going to brush my teeth. And I'm not going to make my child brush his teeth. Oh, I don't want to kiss your child. <laughs> and if, uh, if you don't brush your teeth for 30 or 40 years, you don't have to worry. You won't have any teeth left to brush. So you can just, you can forget that. The cult of the instantaneous. And then the last thing I want to say, and this may be the most important in our culture and society, the cult of things, the cult of accumulation. Do you realize that beyond food and clothing and shelter, there is nothing of real value, eternal value, lasting value that you can purchase? Nothing. Beyond food, clothing, and shelter, there is nothing, no value you can purchase with money. Not one. If fame, fortune, money, luxurious living, unlimited vacations make a happy family, the British royal family ought to be the happiest family in the world. Cheer about the man who saw some clocks in the window of this store and went in. He said, uh, hey, can you sell me some time? The fellow said, no, I can't sell you any time. I can sell you a clock, but I can't sell you time. Walks down the street and he sees a realtor's office. He walks in there and said, hey, uh, will you sell me a home? Realtor says, no, I, I can't sell you a home. I can sell you a house. But a home is something you put in it. Walks on down to a brokerage firm and says, hey, walks in and said, hey, I want to I buy some security. And the broker said, can't sell you any security. I can sell you some investments but I can't sell you security. 
Stops a man on the street and says, hey, do you know where I can buy some love? Man says, no. No, I don't know where you can buy some love. I can tell you where you can buy a woman's body. Where you can buy some sex. But you can't buy love. Beyond food, shelter, and clothing, there is not any value that you can purchase with all the money in the world. That comes through us. Through us. Do you remember Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol? You've heard it, read it all your life. Do you remember? Oh, miserly Scrooge and Jacob Marley, his partner. Jacob Marley died. And Jacob Marley came back to try to warn his friend Scrooge. And he came to him in a dream. And Jacob Marley was trying to convince Scrooge about a change of life. And said, I, Marley said, I didn't do the right thing. I didn't do the right thing. And Scrooge argued with him. said, oh, Jacob, you were a good man. You were good at business. You were good at business. Whereupon Jacob Marley said, business. Business. Mankind was my business. The human welfare was my business. Love was my business. Mercy was my business. Forgiveness was my business. Benevolence was my business. Not business, business. Oh, busy man. Busy man. You can have a little day. Do you remember the poem that you learned when you were a child? Many of you, little man, you've had a busy day. Little man, you've had a busy day. Flip it over to adulthood. Busy man, you've had a little day. If you've lived a day without God as your companion to be an influence upon your wife, your children, and your world. Mankind is our business. I'll tell you a story that happened to me. Some of you have heard it, but it bears repeating. Back in the 50s when I, Martha, and I were in evangelism those years, I conducted a revival meeting, a week-long, eight-day revival meeting, in the First Baptist Church of Huntsville, Texas, where most of you know uh, is the, uh, where the main penitentiary of the state of Texas is. We have many penitentiaries, but that's uh, the big house. That's the main house. That's behind the walls. Well, I was invited to preach there, and I spoke to, to some of the inmates in a service. And I'd gotten to know and had met Mr. O.B. Ellis, who was not a member of the church that I was preaching in, but was an active Presbyterian layman. And he's the one that invited me to come speak at the penitentiary. And uh, then he had me into his office to drink some coffee and visit a little while. And I could tell when I sat down and he sat there for a few moments, he was rather pensive. And he said, I said, Buckner, uh, you're a young preacher, but I want to tell you a story that may help you. He said, yesterday, two people sat here in my office 
One was sitting where you're sitting. The other one was sitting in this other chair. So those two people were father and son. So the father was in that chair and the son was in the chair you're sitting in. And he said the guards brought the two men in, the father and the son, both inmates, to visit in the warden's office. He said the father's been in and out of the penitentiary for most of his life, and he'll spend the rest of his life here. He's considered a habitual criminal. He's been in for car theft and robbery and a variety of things. Said his son had been convicted of murder, and unless the governor intervenes, he's going to die in the electric chair, which we use then in Texas. He's going to die in the electric chair tomorrow night. He said, I didn't say anything. I just sat there and let them talk and visit for what would be the last time. I said, then I said, well, it's time to go. The guards came to escort them back to their cells. And he said, the father stood up and put his arms around his son and said he wept like a child. Convulsive, weeping. And he finally just turned and was taken away back to his cell. The son was taken away to death row where he was to die the next night. And he said, preacher, it's not just a slogan or a phrase or a cliche. It is true. Like father, like son. And I sat there and our oldest son, our only son at that time, Michael was still just a little boy. And I had cold chills. I said, oh God, help me to be the kind of father that you want me to be. To my son. On the next night, I couldn't sleep. I was staying in a hotel there and they used to execute people, electrocute people about midnight because that's when the lowest use of electrical power was being take, taken up by the community and the tremendous surge of electricity that was used to execute a man would make all the lights in Huntsville dim for a few seconds. And I couldn't sleep. I wouldn't sleep. I stayed up till midnight and I was there in that hotel room and I saw those lights in my hotel room dim. Back up. He was gone. Father busy here and there. He was gone. Fathers, mothers busy here and there. They're gone. Start now today to train up a child in the way he should go 
and when he's old, he will not depart from me. You realize, of course, that Jesus never told an institution to be born again. Never told the government to be born again. The business to be born again. Can't happen. He told individuals to be born again. And born again individuals change institutions, change government, change education. It begins with us. Count Leo Tolstoy said, everyone in the world is in favor of change as long as it begins in somebody else. It's to begin with us. Maybe you need to come today to accept the Lord as your Savior. To say, I will follow him. Maybe you've trusted him but never confessed him and become a part of the banquet. You've been coming to the convenience store and God has blessed you. Come on in to be a part of the fellowship, of the banquet of God that goes on in the life of a church. Or maybe you'd like to come, as many do, Sunday by Sunday, to just kneel and pray and return to your seat. You don't have to say a word to me. You say, well, Buckner, I want to join some other church. We'll help you join another church, wherever it might be that you want to belong. But don't leave here without making things right with God. And if doing so publicly helps cement it, then just do so. You can come here and kneel and pray and go back to your seat. Maybe a family, maybe a husband and wife together want to come. Your child may be over there in the nursery. And you here saying, God, help us to be the kind of parents where we will never have to say, the despairing eulogy of I was busy here and there and he or she is gone. Start now. Today is the time. Let's stand and sing.